Let's pray as we turn to God's word together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you very much uh, that you're a God who speaks to us uh, and you draw near to us in your Son and by his Spirit. Uh, And so we pray, uh, would we have a a greater experience of you now as we hear you speak? Uh, Would we draw nearer to you? Uh, And would we grow in uh, the fruit of your Spirit? Uh, We pray for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Well, as you know, many of you, if you don't know yet, uh, we are in the middle of a a series, a series on the fruit uh, of the Spirit. Now, um, there are various fruit of the Spirit, but they're all from the same one Spirit. There's love and there's joy and there's peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. They all are different aspects, if you like, of the one gift of God's Spirit in us. Uh, And today we've come to uh, the third one, which is peace. Peace. What is peace, though? Uh, I searched, as you do, so a lot of preachers do this kind of thing. You search for Google for pictures and we put them up on the screen. So uh, here we go. Uh, I searched for images in Google and these were some of the main themes that came up. I wonder which of these pictures most accurately for you presents this idea of peace. Just have a look. I guess it could be all of them in different ways. Sometimes we find it hard to nail down this idea of what uh, peace might be. But I I think there's a common theme or a common thread that kind of unites these pictures, if you like. It's a sense that everything is as it should be. Everything is as it should be. So it might be that war is over. The greatest threat hanging over the nation has gone. We can celebrate peace. It might be that you're someone who likes to get away from it all. Uh, Then there's the beach. Rest. No cares. Peace. Or it might be that you're of a different generation to mine. and, And you identify with that hippie who could be on something. Who knows? But he's certainly thinking he's experiencing peace. No worries might be the kids are in bed, the jobs for the day are done, you can relax with your feet up, a glass of wine and a roaring fire. Peace. Or a handshake. A relationship that perhaps might have gone wrong but is now healthy. Peace. Uh, Those might all define peace, but sometimes it's easier to define a word by its opposite, isn't it? You see, if we were to think of what's the opposite of peace, then it's things like stress, anxiety, that that kind of gut-wrenching worry or restlessness. And on the other hand, we have peace where those worries disappear. All is well. And that's actually the Bible's understanding of this word peace too. Uh, the, The word in the Old Testament is a word shalom, which you might well have heard of. But one writer defines it as this, multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual completeness. Isn't that what people desperately want? Uh, At work, uh, well-being is a buzzword. I don't know if you find that in your workplaces, but if you just mention the word well-being, 
then you can justify all sorts of expenditure. Uh, Meetings, courses, articles in newsletters. I'm actually part of a a mini task force in our department uh, that focuses specifically on staff well-being. Why have we got that? Well, it's because people are desperate for it. People want to experience the end of activity and anxiety and instead to experience wholeness, life as it's meant to be. I suspect well-being has become more prominent in the workplace over the last 18 months. But, but those pictures show us that the pursuit of, of, of peace is nothing new. And that's actually what we saw in our Bible reading earlier on. If you've turned away from it, just turn back briefly to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're looking and thinking about this pursuit of peace. Uh, We have a description, don't we, in Ecclesiastes 2 of a preacher. Uh, He was a man who was great in wisdom and wealth. And so what does he do? He tests himself with everything under the sun. Pretty much everything possible, all sorts of activities. Uh, Have a look. He aims for pleasure, uh, first of all. He goes for pleasure and he says, what use is it? And then he tries to cheer his heart with wine. He builds great houses. He plants fabulous gardens. He has all manner of slaves, of possessions and treasures. Whatever he laid his eyes on, he took it for himself. But what's the end result? Have a look at verse 10. He says this. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You see, what he's saying is you can have all of those things but it didn't change the harsh reality of life. There was still a search for life as it was meant to be lived. You just get that sense of restlessness, don't you? I've tried this, so it didn't work, but I'll try that, and that didn't work, so I'll try this instead. And that doesn't work either. Constantly searching. And as the writer says, there is nothing new under the sun. But do you know what? We don't believe him. We don't believe him. Uh, You just need to look, for example, at the Sunday newspapers. Uh, I did have last week's newspaper, uh, but I didn't bring it with me. But imagine the Sunday newspaper. You get all these different sections in it, don't you? You get a little bit of news at the start. They're like that thick, the Sunday papers. That's why they cost like three pounds. But um, you get a little bit of news at the start and then you get a magazine that's about food and wine. And then there's the home and the garden section, uh, the weekend pullout, which has all sorts of stuff about body and soul and things like that in there. Uh, Then you've got the garden bit again, because there needs two bits on your home and garden. Then there's the business and money section, the style and fashion, not to mention the travel pullout too. Basically, you get a little bit of reality and a lot of other stuff to do with lifestyle, possessions. It's as if our Sunday newspaper 
has taken the list of the things that the teacher has tried and they try to advertise everything out of them and convince you that those are the things worth striving for. Those are the things that will make your life better. But the teacher says this, I chased after every single one of them because I thought they would offer me something. I thought they would give me life as it's meant to be lived. But in the end, it's like chasing after the wind, trying to catch something that just isn't there. And friends, I think that's ultimately the problem. Everyone actually is facing the same issues in life. Things are not as they are meant to be. We're crushed by anxiety and stress and sadness and powerlessness and all manner of struggles. And what answer does the world give you? Escape. Run away. Run away. I was in a session on well-being at work a few weeks ago. We were encouraged to sit on the floor. I was quite glad this was on Zoom. Um, we were encouraged to sit on the floor, turn our cameras off, uh, ideally light a candle and focus on the candle as we took long, slow, deep breaths in and out. You'll be glad to know this is what your taxes are paying for. But um, it was seriously the weirdest half an hour that I think I've ever had at work. But all it was was just escape. Take half an hour to relax and think about something else. Then your problems don't seem too bad, do they? A bit less real. But it might be that that's not for you. You might have other strategies instead. It might be buying stuff, a bit of retail therapy. That's what our teacher from Ecclesiastes did. And in a few moments, our attention is taken away to the thing that we've just bought and enjoying that. And it feels okay for a bit, but life carries on with its own stresses and strains. We might think that holidays are the answer, a different place, and suddenly those issues feel less big. Might be that you play computer games. Well, at least we can be successful in those. Might be that you just put the telly on and look at somebody else's problems and just glad that their problems are a bit bigger than yours. It may be that we put ourselves into a project. We focus our energies there instead. Now, it's the final day of the uh, Summer Olympics. Uh, and so I thought I would show a little bit of a video uh, to allow some of our Olympians to have their input um, into life as well. Just have a watch uh, of this as it comes up on the screen. The top of an Olympic podium is, in many ways, the ultimate destination in sport. It's a dream of millions, the privilege of just a tiny few. But it begs a question, what is winning gold actually like? You imagine life is going to be changed, uh, you're going to be hugely rich and famous and, you know, full stop. I almost felt cheated. It just is. Of course it is. Everyone imagines that it is. I didn't sleep for weeks. Weeks. And actually, it isn't. Perhaps we do mythologise what it is to win gold. We often suppose that getting to the top of a podium is like a fairy tale and that the champion's going to live happily ever after. But is human psychology quite so simple? I remember being chauffeured back in the bus to the athletes' village 
from doing all my press conferences and sitting there thinking, what are you going to do now? <laughs> what? You've done it. What are you going to do now? And, and that feeling alone made me really kind of a bit depressed, actually. Well, fantastic. We've won. But like, okay, well, the whole world is moving on. There's another event coming and okay, we have to go now. And like, it was a sort of, you know, you make no plans after your event finishes. For many sports people, winning gold is not just an occupational ambition, it's an all-encompassing motivation. Coaches demand nothing less. But if you've won a gold medal, if you've achieved your purpose, what next? Is it any wonder so many gold medal winners feel a overpowering sense of emptiness? Their entire life is wrapped up with getting this one thing and they believe this is going to be the answer. Once I've got this one thing, I'll be satisfied. Uh, and I think they need to get there. For the lucky ones, they get there and find out that it isn't. And then they go looking in the real, the right places to find satisfaction and, and happiness um, because I don't think it's wrapped up in a gold medal. It doesn't mean that all other aspects of your life are now set and that you're never going to have another problem in life. It doesn't work that way. It's kind of odd for me, having lost my faith, to quote the Bible. But in Proverbs it says, without a vision, the people perish. And I think if you don't have something to lead you on, then there's nowhere to go. The journey finishes, and that's why you feel empty. Three hours after we'd raced, I ended up back in the Olympic Village, sat on the end of my bed with my Olympic gold medal in my hand and thought, that's it, I've done it. And winning is undeniably and publicly a sort of highlight. It's as high as you can go in almost any Olympic sport, certainly our sport. Well, everything else is going to be down compared to that. At one level, it is rather obvious that a gold medal is not a panacea for life itself. Just because an athlete is fantastic at sport doesn't mean they're going to have all the answers for the challenges that lie beyond the field of play. I can't imagine and never in my life that I won't have a, just a little bit of a smile and a good feeling when I think about that moment that I won Olympic gold medals. But does that make everything else in my life perfect? Absolutely not. Many great sportsmen, many of the greatest of all, reflect with great pride on having ascended the top of an Olympic podium but many others have expectations of a gold medal that simply cannot be met. If this wasn't the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, what is? Interesting, isn't it? Really poignant. Uh, the, particularly the, the comment from Chris Boardman, the lucky ones are the ones who win and then discover that it was empty and meaningless. The lucky ones are the ones that can actually say, I've been there and I know it's not the thing that makes or brings peace. But then at the end, we're left with Jonathan Edwards saying, well, if it isn't the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, then what is? It's pretty depressing, isn't it? I mean, this is, <laughs> that, that's the aim of this first bit. We just want to see how hard and how unsettling and how unsatisfactory and how unsatisfying life really is under the sun. Fears, cares, anxieties, worries, restlessness,
a, a gut-wrenching desire for life to be right, for, for it to be as it should be to have peace. And it may be that that's your experience too. All you want is peace. Well, all the world has to offer is escape. Run away and pretend that your problems aren't there for a little while. The teacher from Ecclesiastes, the Olympic athletes, they're all our examples. They've looked in the places that we might want to look into, and they've said to us, it's not here. And that is God's plan. God doesn't want us to find peace in the wrong place. It's inevitable that we're listless and restless, that there is this search for peace because God has subjected the whole world to futility so that we might know enduring peace. Let me read some words to you from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. You see, into a world of pain and struggle and restlessness where people are desperate to find peace, a child is born who is called the Prince of Peace, who promises to bring with him great government and eternal peace. And that child is also called Mighty God. The prophet Isaiah promises that God who for all eternity knew life as it was meant to be, i.e. peace, would subject himself to the futility and struggle and pain of life on earth. And in the New Testament, Matthew tells us that this child is called Jesus. Do you see what's going on and, and how remarkable it is? We have restlessness because we want to know life as it's meant to be. We want to know life where all is well, and we think the way to do it is to escape our problems. Escape the struggles to to get a, a temporary glimpse of that peace. But what's wonderful is that God in Christ escapes the perfect peace of heaven in order to come and bring it to us. He subjected himself throughout his life to the frustration that we feel. He knew the things that unsettle us, the things that we hate. He knew illness and hunger and thirst. He knew rejection from his friends. He was laughed at and tested wherever he went. He knew the death of loved ones. He knew it all. And yet through all of that, he knew peace. Because he knew his father. Friends, The Prince of Peace knows all the struggles that we experience in life. But he also offers peace to others. The sick often came to Jesus when, and when he healed them, he would say, go in peace. You you see, they came to Jesus in the midst of their struggles and, and their anxiety and their worries and their sadness. And Jesus restored them 
and told them now to live in peace, live as life was meant to be. Why? Because they had come to him and shown faith. But the most profound moment, I think, when Jesus offers peace is when he offers it to his disciples. He says this in John 21, or John says this, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Three times in John chapter 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you. It's actually, apart from the same incident in Luke, the only time where Jesus says those words, peace be with you. Why is it so profound? Well, because two days earlier, Jesus had died on a cross. And as Jesus died, he cried out in absolute anguish. Why? Because in that one moment on the cross, as he went through utter devastation, the bond of peace with his father that he had known throughout his life was severed in that moment. In that moment, he experienced life as it was utterly never meant to be. What did he cry out? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is effectively, so that in two days time, you can say to everyone who lives in fear, peace be with you. In two days time, you can say peace be with you because Jesus pays the price for peace. The Prince of Peace pays the price of peace. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Colossians 1, 15 and, uh, uh, 1, 19 and 20, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, if anyone is searching for peace, the answer in our search is to go to the cross. Because the cross is the place where Jesus makes peace. Peace with God first and foremost. God's ultimately put our world into this frustration because of our sin and our enmity with him, our hostility to him. And that frustration could be dealt with only by the blood of Jesus at the cross, where he makes peace with God, but also peace with one another. At the heart of our peace can only be reconciliation with God. We have that peace in Christ if we know him because his spirit's fruit is peace. That can be the experience of the Christian. But the question now is not just do we know that peace, but how can we grow in that knowledge of peace? I'm going to have a little break. 
Mummy's going to come and preach. Uh, preach? She's not going to do that. Um, read. <laughs> uh, she's uh, she's going to read a second reading, which is Philippians chapter 4. So if you turn up Philippians chapter 4, uh, find it in your Bibles, um, and uh, we're going to have a bit of a reading from that before we look at the second little bit. Thanks. So we're reading from Philippians 4, starting at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let the gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Thank you uh, very much indeed. Uh, so we're going to stay in Philippians chapter 4 for the, uh, the rest of our time together. Uh, have a look at verse 7. It says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then the phrase is reversed, isn't it, in verse 9. It says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me as seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. We've got the peace of God, verse 7, and the God of peace, verse 9. In other words, God himself draws near to you and sets up an army around you to protect the very core of your emotions in order that he keeps you close to Christ Jesus. That's why you feel peace. You see, our temptation is often to think that we can only feel peace when things are okay, when life feels fine. That it's all about our circumstances determining our emotion. That's actually the logic of the escapism that the world would say. If life sucks, then forget about it. Take time out. Focus on the waves or on something different. Change your circumstances. But Paul doesn't say that, does he? That's not the mark of the Christian. No, notice verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And you know, at this stage in Paul's life, he's in prison, he's in chains. But he knows peace because the God of peace was with him. And the peace of God was protecting his heart and his mind from being driven to despair. 
I, I feel like as a family, we're only really getting to know some of you here at REC, sort of very briefly, really, but we're loving the beginning of getting to know you all. But we don't know your stories yet. But I'm sure that there will be many stories that will tell of the experience that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding has been with you through tough situations. I'm sure many of you will be able to say, I have no idea how I would have got through that without the God of peace guarding my heart. I don't know, it may have been illness, it may have been relational breakdowns, it may have been joblessness, it may even have been persecution. I'm looking forward to hearing each of those stories. We sang earlier, didn't we? Blessed be your name. We sang blessed be your name when the world's all as it should be. But we also sang when I'm found in the desert place. When I walk through the wilderness, still I will choose to say, blessed be your name. How encouraging it is to hear one another sing those words with such heart. When Paul writes in verses 7 and 9, he says, and though, have a look, first word of verse 7, and the peace of God. And then verse 9, and the God of peace. It's as if those and the are conclusions of the practices of peace that precede them. It's almost like, yes, you know peace through the spirit of God, but actually there's a practice of peace that goes on. Do these things and you will deepen that knowledge and experience of God's peace in your hearts. And there are two things, if you like, the practice of peace. The first is this, pray with thanksgiving. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So if you think you're lacking peace, the first thing to do is turn to God. Don't turn to retail therapy. Don't start a project. Don't turn the laptop on. Don't try and forget about it. Don't light a candle. Don't run away. Turn to God. Bring it to him with thanksgiving. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? With thanksgiving. Uh, Sometimes, or something that's often advocated uh, for people these days is called a thankfulness diary. Anyone come across a thankfulness diary? It's, uh, it's big in the Headspace app from what I've been told. But writing down three things each morning that we're grateful for has been shown to bring great mental health benefits. I've got some colleagues who speak very highly of it. It's interesting though, isn't it? Uh, especially when I think about that. When, when people are thankful, who are they thankful to? You see, thankfulness is a personal thing, isn't it? We say thank you, don't we? It's personal. Uh, And so thank you? Well, you can't say it without there being somebody to thank. But the Christian can be thankful in a way that others can't because we actually have someone to thank. We can thank God. But it might be tempting to think, well, okay, I'll thank God for the good stuff. 
Or I'll pray with thanksgiving when God has answered my prayer to deal with the, the, the unsettling life that I'm dealing with. Or, or it might just be that we go, okay, right, I'm going to turn to God and say, Lord, please help me or please change this circumstance and thank you for all the things that I really like. But I want you to look at this picture up on the screen. There we go, it's rubbish, isn't it? I reckon my, yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing that you, it's the kind of thing that you put on your, uh, on your fridge because your four-year-old's done it at school or at nursery. And you go, brilliant, oh, there you go. Very talented, that four-year-old. Close up, looks rubbish. And sometimes life feels a bit like that. But after a little while, it feels like sometimes we can step back a little, perhaps start to see a bit more of the bigger picture and it makes a little bit more sense. And then one day, finally, we will see it all and discover that that brushstroke was part of a masterpiece. God promises that in all things, he works for the good of those who love him to conform us to the image of Christ. And that involves and that includes all of the stuff that we would rather not go through. All of the things that are hard because God is working in the midst of those to make us more like Jesus. So we can be thankful in those difficult times and even for those difficult times because they are part of God's big plan for our good. I, a bit of a, yeah, funny illustration, I say funny. Um, we were coming back from Leeds today and uh, we were driving down because we'd been for Karen's, uh, to Karen's family for lunch. And we left late, so I was a bit annoyed about that. Um, and then the sat-nav said, road works. And it told us that we were going to get here around 4.30. I, I can see quite a lot of cringing faces, particularly among the pastors here. Um, like, everything inside me was angry. Um, angry with, and Karen knows it, with her and her family. Uh, angry with the roadworks angry with everything and I literally thought to myself Paul what are you preaching on later on who's who's in control here what's God doing here and I, I kind of admittedly once I kind of thought yeah we probably are going to get here on time um had a little chuckle to myself and thought God knows exactly what he's doing here and uh, there's probably a lot more people frustrated on the M1 at the moment but um but God was teaching me something. He was teaching me to turn to him with thankfulness in the midst of frustrations and no peace. So firstly, pray with thanksgiving. Secondly, think. Think about what you know. Think about doctrine. At verse 8, it says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, and at the end of the verse, think about such things. Think about the truth. What Paul is saying is when you're going through tough times, get your Bible out. 
If you're struggling with a lack of peace, get your Bible out and start thinking about what it says. It tells you that God has made a world that was good, designed for us to live with him in it. But that world was messed up by sin, so we experience pain and sadness and the restlessness that we've already spoken about. You see, that puts our circumstances in context, doesn't it? But the Bible's story doesn't end there. God entered the world in Christ to deal with the effects of sin, and he is with us by his Spirit. And he will bring us to an eternal place, the new Jerusalem. Literally Jerusalem, city of peace. That's where we're heading. You see, that's why doctrine and Christian teaching is vitally important, because it puts our lives into a bigger picture that we were talking about before, of what God is doing in the world. Listening to the Bible can allow him to make sense of what you're going through. I know that many of us have found the work series that Ian has done really helpful for precisely that reason. If you're struggling with work and you want peace in it, then don't think about a career shift. That's not the answer. Put it in context by what God is doing in you and in that situation. If you've not listened to them, listen to the podcasts available on the website. Allow the Lord to speak to you because he says, ultimately, everything is going to be okay because you're heading to a place called the city of peace. And you can know that in part now through the spirit of God. So think about what you know. Think about doctrine, but also verse eight. Think about Christ. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, think about such things. Can you see how this is a bit more emotional than the first three? Pure, lovely, admirable. If true, noble and right are to do with the mind, then these feel a bit more to do with the heart. Now, I appreciate that there's kind of a bit of a false distinction there, but I think this is often to do with where we invest our hearts. We've already seen, haven't we, that people chase after all sorts of things to try and find peace. Money, power, success, relationships, gold medals, whatever. Those are good things. But those who have them still don't know peace. Maybe that's you at the moment. Maybe that's the struggle you're facing, the experience of restlessness, gut-wrenching anxiety that rocks us to the very core. Why? Because... When something we love is threatened, then that's when life feels awful, is at its worst. When something we love is threatened, when we think we might lose something precious to us, that's where the struggle hits. So to use Paul's words from elsewhere, we know peace when we set our hearts and our minds on things above where Christ is. Christ is supremely pure the innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is supremely lovely. Sounds a bit weird, but there's nothing and nobody more worthy of our love than the one who demonstrates his own love for us by dying for us. Christ is supremely admirable. Can you think of anyone who shows greater character than the God who stepped into the world to save sinners like you and me? If you want to know peace then set your hearts and your minds on Christ. 
because that cannot be threatened. As we draw near to him, he will never leave us because he draws near to us and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, we have the spirit of Christ in our hearts if we trust him. But if we're struggling to know the peace of Christ, then we need to begin by praying to him, being thankful for who he is and all that he's doing. Pick up a Bible and read through God's picture for all eternity and allow your heart to be turned to the Lord Jesus once more. And look though, if you don't want to start that journey on your own, then please come and talk to me, come and talk to one of the pastors here at REC. Talk to anybody you trust. They don't have to be a formal minister or anything like that. Because, and if somebody does come to you and you're freaking out a bit, because it's like, whoa, what am I supposed to do now? Well, whoever you come to will do three really simple things. The first thing they'll do is they'll say, let's pray. Let's pray together with thanksgiving. The second thing they'll do is they'll say, let's open our Bibles together and see what God has to say about this. And the third thing they'll do is they'll think about the Lord Jesus and point you to him. Because those three things are the three things of finding peace. Pray with thanksgiving. Think about what God is doing and love the Lord Jesus Christ and grow more deeply in love with him. See how lovely and pure and admirable he is. Because as we turn from loving things to loving Christ, the God of peace is with us and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you um, left, if you like, you ran away from, in a positive way, ran away from the peace of heaven, the eternal peace of relating to your Father in order that you might come to us to bring us peace. And we thank you that you did that not easily, but through the great pain and experience of that bond of peace being severed at the cross, that we might once again be restored to relationship with your Father. And thank you so much that you were able to say, peace be with you to your disciples. We pray that if any of us are living in fear at the moment, if any of us have got that anxiety or worry about life, that our hearts would be turned once more to you, and that we would know the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. That we might be able to say, I don't know how I got through that. But ultimately I know it was because of the Lord Jesus. And so please continue to fuel us with those stories. That we might be able to talk to others. And be bringers of peace to the world around us. And we ask it for your glory and our joy. Amen.